My name is Becca Lubo, and I'm the new Voices Judaism Unbound Fellow for 2020. You're listening to a special bonus episode of Judaism Unbound. I want to preface this episode by saying that some of the conversations you hear may seem disjointed initially. I'll talk about the philosophy of a mutual aid network, accessibility for disabled Jews and Jewish institutions, and a debate about appropriate uses of the Kaddish prayer. I hope by the end, you'll see how these pieces fit together. I want to offer a suggestion or vision for a Jewish response to a pandemic. And we'll get to that. For now, here's part of a conversation between me and my friend Miriam. They are one of my Jewish classmates at the University of Michigan and a close friend. Full disclosure, Miriam is also a New Voices Fellow this year. I remember when we put together the mutual aid spreadsheet with other activists here in Ann Arbor, I read the first news stories about college dorms shutting down and leaving some students with nowhere to go. And a day later, we were trying to figure out a system to make sure people didn't end up with no safe access to food or place to sleep. And I knew almost nothing about mutual aid work, and I felt completely unprepared and overwhelmed by that challenge. As someone who has spent time thinking about mutual aid, but didn't necessarily expect to have to create something so quickly, what was going through your mind in those early days of massive change? A ton of students who I know are going to have a lot of issues when the university or if the university shuts down certain programs. And people in the larger Ann Arbor community We're going to have a lot of issues just in general with city structures shutting down, uh, you know, food banks closing. And it was really unclear what exactly was going to happen. Information was changing so fast. And so I knew that there was a sense of urgency of like, we have to fill in all the gaps right now. And I think that actually that sense of urgency propelled me to act And I think I took on a lot really fast. I've sort of scaled back a little bit. I'll tell you a story that relates sort of Jewishly to this moment and ritual about that. So my parents, um, on Friday night, there's there's a ritual of blessing the children. So for the blessing this past week, we were Skyping in with my grandparents. And my parents just looked at us. And for the second week in a row, they were kind of like, we don't know what you need right now. Last week, they gave us the blessing of whatever you need, may you find it this week. But they were like, does anyone have anything? And I was like, yeah, actually, I think I do. So I shared a little bit about what people at the Mutual Aid Network of Ipsy had been saying about moving at the speed of trust, which is like a well-known mutual aid phrase. Um, What does that mean? I'm pretty sure. And it means basically that you don't rush just because there's a need there's a great need because capitalism and colonialism create so much need um, because our needs aren't getting met and we're not being nourished that like there's more than one person has the capacity to handle so that it goes along with other principles that include like making sure you don't take on more than you can handle because then you can really hurt people and let people down. So you don't just try to grow, like have a growth more and more and more, but rather let me get to know this person. Let me figure out what they need. Let me figure out what I need. Let me figure out how those two things work together. And let's very consensually and thoughtfully come up with a plan of how we're going to meet each other's needs. So it's based in solidarity work rather than like 
assuming I have everything to give and you have nothing and I'm going to like give you charity and decide how you use it, but rather like taking stock of what exists, being really thoughtful and moving slowly. The question Miriam's parents asked them feels like the question for this moment. We don't know what you need right now. Does anyone have anything? As so many things change and the Jewish community tries to adapt, it's easy to fall into a sense of urgency because this is a moment of urgency. But as Miriam said, sometimes moving at a frantic speed isn't the best way to problem solve. I think the mutual aid principles Miriam holds can be applied to Jewish institutions. Don't move faster than the speed of trust. Don't grow at any cost. Don't always try to do more, more, more. Don't assume you have all of the answers about what a community needs. Instead, we can act thoughtfully, taking the time to assess needs, opportunities, and lessons. That's the goal of today's podcast episode. I want to take a moment to think about how the lessons we draw from this moment can be mapped onto Jewish institutional life. As we all adjust to a new reality during a pandemic and Jewish institutions make some changes, let's think about how we can be changing for the better. Mutual aid networks may seem like a strange place to look for Jewish wisdom, but I don't think it's so much of a stretch. I think one of the first examples that I ever had of what I would call mutual aid, I don't know if they would call it this, but um, seeing my parent organize like meals and I grew up dropping off, you know, a lasagna to someone's house because they had a relative die and were sitting shiva. And then when my grandfather died, um, my dad's dad, my mom took care of things and made sure there were meals, made sure that the funeral arrangements were able to happen and just really grounded everybody for her father-in-law's funeral and afterwards. And just seeing her extend herself to do this care work that she's always done was something that really stuck with me. I see the way my friends take care of each other and really make sure like, oh, this person needs something. Let's see if we can figure it out for them. Like making sure each other's needs are met is is something that I try to extend beyond just the people that I know intimately, but also towards people that I, I maybe haven't met as closely yet. I just do it out of a sense, this is what people do for each other. This is how we treat each other. I like that image of mutual aid as just people helping each other, doing things like bringing food for someone's shiva, because we've both been part of Jewish activist movements, and sometimes it feels hard to explain how working towards structural political change is part of my Jewish practice. And it is a part of my Jewish practice. So for me, shutting down ICE detention centers that imprison people for being outsiders feels like a Jewish obligation because of my ancestors' experiences with being imprisoned by a violent, hateful government. But it isn't necessarily intuitive for people how that work is related to Jewish obligations. And mutual aid work can kind of boil down to be there for people in your community, support those who are struggling, make sure everyone has food, just basic acts of care. There's no need to explain how that's a Jewish obligation. People get it, right? So how do you think we can apply those Jewish values and practices to mutual aid work in this moment? Well, the struggle right now is suddenly things are getting worse for more people. 
So it's just kind of a scale issue where it's like, these are entrenched problems. So right now it's trying to find other ways of being to meet people's needs in the way that we can as a group, but also know that this is a long haul project. And it's not something that we're just going to solve just because this crisis is over. Like a vaccine or something like treatment like doesn't mean that people aren't going to need mutual aid. It will remain necessary. If mutual aid networks that were created because of coronavirus will remain necessary after the pandemic is over because people will still be struggling to make rent and feed their families, I feel like that's an important reminder that, quote, returning to normal shouldn't be our goal, that we can aim higher than that. In many ways, our Jewish world has changed already and will be changing more due to this pandemic. But just like mutual aid will be necessary in the after, we have to recognize that our Jewish world shouldn't discard what we're learning right now because we have an opportunity to become better. I think what I see as a lot of potential right now um, is for institutions to refocus instead of focusing on maintaining themselves at all costs and growing and to have some reckoning of like for communities that assimilated into whiteness, what are we doing to really make sure that we don't hoard resources during this time? Like for communities that have been fighting for just space to exist Jewishly because they're not recognized because they're, you know, you're Jews of color or disabled Jews or queer and trans Jews, like for all these different identities, like it's really important to say like, what have these communities been doing and how can we support them, support ourselves, like in continuing to do the work in smaller ways, maybe, maybe scaled down because right now everyone's just trying to survive day to day. But communities that know what it's like to survive day to day also have a lot of skills for coping with stuff like this. Miriam was right. So far, we've talked about the need to use the lessons of this moment to grow as a community. That means thinking beyond number of programs or people showing up to things and really focusing on depth. What kind of community do we want to be? How do Jewish people feel about the Jewish institutions available to them? People who have been marginalized within the Jewish community have plenty of wisdom to share here, and they aren't always listened to. So I talked to my friend Raquel, a Jewish activist, writer, and rabbi-to-be. A really frustrating thing for the disability community, uh, me identifying as someone who's disabled and has invisible disabilities, is that accommodations that people have been fighting for for years and years and years that uh, haven't been considered necessary or a priority or they weren't given the accommodations to make that possible. And now it's being made possible for everyone else. I really hope that the Jewish community uses this opportunity to raise their awareness of how disabled folks and elderly folks have always had these struggles. This isn't anything new. And it's amazing that people are embracing live streaming and digital services and these other forms of technology to make Jewish life and school and work more accessible. But when this pandemic is, God willing, over, I really hope it ushers us into a new raised awareness of continuing to use these tools so that it's accessible to disabled and elderly people always.
it should not have taken a pandemic for people to realize that it's okay to zoom into classes. I would have really benefited from being able to video chat into classes when my disabilities were acting up when I was in college and instead my grades suffered or my professors were very frustrated with me when I wasn't able to physically go into class. Online accessibility isn't just important for college classes. I've been so excited to see all of the new offerings of Jewish ritual, community, and learning online the past few weeks. I've also been wishing they were around before the pandemic. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, and access to these vibrant online Jewish community events would have been a game changer. There will still be a need for online Jewish offerings after the pandemic ends, because Jews with disabilities and all of the other people who want these resources will still need ways to participate fully in Jewish life. As my journey into the disability community has grown and my awareness of this, I really am embracing the Jewish value of teshuva, being that uh, during the high holidays, we reflect on the things that we did wrong during the year. And we don't just apologize. We don't just like say that we're sorry and then we're immediately clear. In Judaism, you need to go a step further. And teshuva actually means that you're turning. Your soul is turning inward and transforming into a new version of yourself. And I find that really powerful that for disability, queer inclusion, inclusion of people of color, so many types of inclusion. It's not enough to just say, oh, sorry, we now realize that we screwed up. Jewish communities need to take this opportunity to commit themselves to doing better in the future. Don't miss the call to action here. The point of this conversation isn't to make Jewish institutions feel guilty for not being accessible enough, because that doesn't help anyone. We need real action to make our communities more accessible, and there's concrete steps we can take to begin. A lot of people view disability inclusion as being really daunting and then don't try. Or on the flip side, they'll think that they've reached the pinnacle of inclusion, saying like, oh yeah, we have an ADA accessible synagogue where people who use wheelchairs can come in, and they then don't think about is your website accessible to people who are visually impaired? Do you have captions on all of your photos? What if people are chronically ill and can't actually make it into the synagogue? Even little things like, is the mezuzah so high that people who use mobility aids aren't able to reach it? Like There are so many things that you may not even think of, or even having one disabled person be able to attend doesn't mean that everybody can. So I just really hope that this whole experience is an opportunity for Jewish institutions to realize that there's more that they could have been doing all along. And I hope that even if they start live streaming services and having captions on those, because you need that too, that they then think, what else can we be doing to include disabled folks in our community? Or if there aren't disabled folks in your community, why is it that they aren't there? Can you be doing better to actually bring them in? Because they do exist. If you say... We don't need to have ASL interpretation because we don't have any deaf or hard of hearing people in our community. I guarantee you that they are there. They just may not have felt comfortable going. It's also an investment into telling those people, hey, we care about you. We want you here. A synagogue shouldn't wait to have a rabbi who uses a wheelchair to install a ramp on the bima, like this stage where people pray from. Like that's something that should just 
be there and say to disabled people that they are welcome in that space. Raquel's question is huge. If there aren't disabled Jews in a Jewish space, why not? Too often, when Jewish institutions talk about people they aren't engaging, they chalk it up to apathy. The subtext of this argument is some Jews just don't care enough, and that's why they aren't here. But when I think about Jews who don't regularly attend a synagogue, the Jews who don't donate to their local federation, I don't see apathy. I see passionate, creative, wise Jews who care deeply about our people and the world around us. As a Jewish college student, I can't count how many times I've heard someone say that my generation of Jews is apathetic. My generation. And it makes me angry because it's an abdication of responsibility. Labeling anyone who doesn't participate in a Jewish institution apathetic excuses that institution from doing any reflection about how to improve. Is your programming relevant to the people you want to reach? Do you welcome Jews from interfaith families? Will Jews of color feel comfortable? How about gay and trans Jews? What about financial barriers? Most young people can't afford hundreds of dollars for a Yom Kippur service or JCC membership. And then, of course, synagogues that don't live stream their services can't be attended by people with chronic illnesses unable to leave home. Jews who don't regularly engage Jewish institutions aren't apathetic. We need to understand that in order to start reaching them. Miriam also has some thoughts about this. Oh, goodness. The last thing I'd describe the Jews that I know on campus, the ones who are deeply involved in the stuff I do and the ones who'd never come, they're not apathetic at all. These are people who care so deeply about the world, about their Jewish community and their broader communities. And sometimes what looks like apathy is actually like a really strong moral compass that says, I'm unwilling to support an institution that, you know, makes life hard for Palestinians on campus. There's just sets of politics associated with certain institutions. With certain institutions, it's just, your programming's boring. Yeah, and sometimes it's not relevant. I mean, it's just, it's not interesting to us. And some of this stuff is interesting to us, and we would want to go. Like, we would want to be part of a minion. We would want to, you know, hang out with an intergenerational Jewish community. But our personal background and deeply held political beliefs or just the facets of our identity that are integral to who we are, like, aren't respected. For me, it's like I show up and, like, everyone assumes I'm a girl. And I'm like, I'm not a girl. Why do I have to spend this whole time, like, just educating people about my pronouns? Like, does this space engage politically, financially, socially in behaviors that I find unethical? Would I want my kids to be a part of this? Would I want this to be the role model for what community is? And I think we all make compromises all the time. But I think sometimes that there's certain lines that people aren't willing to cross. And that's okay. That doesn't make them apathetic. I think that people are working really hard to find ways to engage in their Judaism. And it doesn't always look recognizable to the generations before us or even our peers. But it's there. And I I see really beautiful things happening. Throughout this episode, we've talked about how Jewish institutions can learn from this moment of crisis as everything changes. We talked about applying mutual aid principles to institutions, focusing on thoughtful community building rather than urgency or constant attempts to grow. We reflected on the Jews who were left out of Jewish institutions, 
and the importance of continuing the work to make our community more accessible after this pandemic ends. All of that is so important, and I truly hope to see Jewish institutions emerge from the pandemic more thoughtful, innovative, and accessible. I also believe that Judaism needs to belong to all of us, not just institutions. There's sort of a culture of deferring to specific leadership, whether it's traditional leadership or non-traditional leadership, as like the ones who have the authority to make decisions about how we process and how we grieve and how we make art. And I really want people empowered that like their ways of being and their ways of relating to each other are valid. And that's sort of a larger life project of mine. But I think right now it's especially important because we're going to need a lot of people doing a lot of small things to get through this. And not to mention like taking down the system that made this such a crisis in the first place. I don't have all the answers about that, but I think that collectively we do. And if we recognize each other as collaborators, I think that can go a long way. We all need to be collaborators creating the future of Judaism together. That means finding the courage to say, I have something to contribute. And that can be hard because being a leader is hard. I decided to talk to Raquel for this episode after I read a poem they wrote called A Graduation Blessing for the Class of 2020. It was Jewish and beautiful, and it made me feel seen as someone graduating in the midst of a pandemic. In the process of getting it published, Raquel ran into some of the challenges that come with drawing on Jewish tradition to create something new. It was originally called the Kaddish for the class of 2020 and included the first line of the Kaddish blessing, which translates to glorified and sanctified be the name of God. So I kept in that English phrase and changed the name of the whole thing to be class of 2020 instead of Kaddish for the class of 2020. My partner even agreed with that. It was saying that it was really insensitive to compare this to a Kaddish when people are actually passing right now. And that to my partner saying that prayer meant like my partner's grandmother's funeral and didn't mean missing graduation. So I was really conflicted, but out of respect for those who are losing loved ones right now uh, or fear losing loved ones, I did end up changing it. I want to talk about that edit because I think it speaks to something we do with Jewish tradition where we feel like, and when I say we, I mean all Jews, particularly those of us who come from more secular backgrounds or have less Jewish education or for other reasons have been marginalized from Jewish communities. I think there are fears that we don't have ownership over this material in some way or that changing it will make it somehow inauthentic. And a recurring theme on Judaism Unbound is this tradition belongs to all of us as Jews and that experimentation is a source of Jewish strength. I would say we should be able to draw on things like the Kaddish prayer, for all different kinds of moments of loss. And I understand on a visceral level, Kaddish has a lot of weight because of its associations. You know, when I think of Kaddish, I think about my grandfather's funeral and the year after he died. So I understand people having a sense that, no, this is sacred, this is special. 
But Kaddish was a source of strength to me in those times. And if people need strength now, they should be able to draw on any aspect of tradition that feels meaningful, even if they're doing it in a different context or in a slightly different way. I a thousand percent agree with you. And I used to think that tradition really can't be tampered with in the line of Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. I really care about tradition and ritual. And that is where I have always felt my connection to Jewish community of saying the same prayers that my ancestors have said for such a long time, keeping kosher and following the same dietary laws they always had. So I was really resistant for a while of the concept of drawing on traditional texts and applying it to modern day circumstances. It since shifted a bit for me where I now see the value of those things. When you just brought up that Kaddish is being said for something that's really sacred, I think sacredness in this moment of self-isolation and pandemic that we're going through, it's a different type of sacredness, but through something really serious and scary and experiencing a loss. So. I think that drawing upon text and stories that have existed for thousands of years for our people and expanding it to apply to the current moment or to include a new group of people who were previously excluded by that text can be a really revolutionary thing. Modifying it to have gender neutral language or reclaim a ritual that was previously just for cis men or honoring something in our lives that there previously wasn't uh, a prayer for. I think that there's nothing wrong with us drawing in those moments and using them to bring sacredness into our lives right now and for things that we may not have words for, but that we have really powerful emotions about. If you take one thing away from this podcast episode... I hope it's that Judaism belongs to all of us. Our traditions belong to all of us, to reach for in moments of crisis, to innovate and play with. Our institutions should belong to all of us, and we need to recommit ourselves to the long work of making sure every Jew feels welcome in Jewish community, now and after this pandemic ends. But we don't need to wait for Jewish institutions to figure out a response to this moment, because Jewish leadership belongs to all of us, too. Like grassroots mutual aid networks, we can take responsibility for our own needs and our own people. No single Jewish institution, leader, or person has all of the answers right now. We're all still learning, turning toward each other to say, I don't know what you need right now. Does anyone have anything? And I believe, collectively, if we take ownership over our own Jewish future, we have everything we need. Well, Becca, I really enjoyed that piece. It's so interesting on a lot of levels. I'm, I'm thinking in particular about some kind of liminal space that you're living in here between the, the millennials and the next generation, all of which is uh, in the rearview mirror for me. So what I'm really interested in here is this kind of uh, new perspective that we're getting onto Judaism Unbound, which is actually a perspective that we've gotten a little and should get a lot more of. So I was thinking the thing that really struck me 
And I'm wondering how this was in your conversation and also whether it works this way, you think, generationally, like part of me feels like I wish this was already over generationally, but it still seems to be in the air, which was that I was struck by the fact that the person who pointed out this concern about the Kaddish language for that poem, the Kaddish for the class of 2020, I was struck by the fact that it was just another Jew. It wasn't it wasn't some rabbi that freaked out. You know, it wasn't some parent that got upset. It was just another person of kind of the same generation. And, and I, it made me think about how, to some extent, some of the things that we might try to push against on Judaism Unbound is not necessarily how we think of it or how we even talk about it sometimes, which is, you know, us regular Jews pushing against institutions, but really just pushing against one another sometimes or certain assumptions that have been so deeply embedded into us that they kind of feel institutional, even though they're not necessarily coming from an institution. So I'm wondering if that struck you in the conversation and and how you've been thinking about that kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, We didn't focus on it during the episode, but actually That edit originally came from when Rachel finished this poem and submitted it to a website for publication. Um, They were told by the website, actually, you need to change this title um, because we're worried about the fact that it's called Kaddish um, and that that could be disrespectful or make people uncomfortable. Um, And Rachel went to their partner and their partner actually agreed. And so they heard from a few different places... Um, there was real discomfort with using the the phrase Kaddish in any context that didn't involve the dead. So I I think it there is a phenomenon in the entire Jewish community, not just in in some ancient Jewish institution, um, that people feel reluctant to play around with tradition to change certain things. Um, Kaddish in particular has serious weight um, and. You know, I've, I've actually been part of a conversation where people freaked out about the use of Kaddish before um, in If Not Now Actions, which is a Jewish activist group I'm part of. People have recited Kaddish um, for people killed in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and there that ca- causes real controversy. Um, but I think with any ritual innovation, um, there's always some pushback and just reluctance. I think people censor themselves as much as they um, get pushback from the external community because they feel anxiety about doing something wrong or messing up material or making something inauthentic, um, which Judaism Unbound has talked about authenticity fears um, many times before. And I'm encouraged because I see a generation of Jews more than than previous generations, really embracing, leaning into that anxiety and making new Jewish things anyway. And the the fact that the poem was even written and was published is a testament to that. Um, and there's all kinds of ritual innovations happening all the time that are pushing boundaries from prayers that are modifying language to be more inclusive of different genders, new kinds of communal spaces. And I really hope to see more of that. Do you think that among your generation, let's say, which I suppose people from my generation and older will kind of um, stereotypically look at and say they always want to feel comfortable. You know, the comfortable is a big buzzword. And I wonder whether that 
potentially gets in the way of innovation in the sense that if you are concerned about whether an innovation is making someone feel uncomfortable, it's almost bound to make people feel uncomfortable. So the concern that I have is a little bit, how do we make sure not to overly constrain innovation through concerns about the inevitability that it might hurt somebody's feelings or it might make someone feel uncomfortable while nevertheless holding those values really dear? I think it depends on who you're worried about making comfortable. Um, traditional Jewish leaders or people running current institutions might be uncomfortable with change, but I've seen so many innovations happen because people weren't comfortable with the status quo and wanted something different. Um, and I think everyone deserves and should have space to do Jewish ritual that they're comfortable with and communities that make them feel comfortable and accepted and excited. And if Jewish innovation allows that to happen more, we should embrace it. You know, Miriam talked about feeling really uncomfortable with traditional spaces where people would misgender them, use the wrong pronouns. And new inclusive spaces are being created and doing a ton of innovation to create spaces that are more comfortable for trans Jews. There's a lot of innovation like that. So the part of the conversation that was, well, a lot of parts were really interesting to me, but the, the one that jumps out to me now is I really want to zoom in on that phrase you used a couple times, um, Judaism belongs to us. Um, because I hear that and like, as I think through what it would mean when applied, I actually think two opposite conclusions could arise um, that are both true and both stem from a place of deeply agreeing with the idea that Judaism belongs to us. So one conclusion is that Judaism belongs to us. Our Jewish institutions are ours and our Jewish institutions should reflect the reality of Jews um, in all of our diversity and should be accountable to the perspectives of different kinds of Jews. And so inst in, that would be sort of the takeaway of, ah, Jewish institutions belong to us. The other takeaway would be, and I'm saying the same words again, um, ah, Judaism belongs to us. It actually doesn't belong to the institutions. It belongs to us, the people. And so at a certain point, we don't care so much what the institutions do. It's not that important to us that they are reflecting us because we're going to create our own genuine reflections of Judaism for our moment um, with or without those institutions. So I guess I'd love to hear your reflections on like, what's the what's the Gemara to this mission? What's the like next step? What's the commentary on the phrase Judaism belongs to us? Because it's a powerful phrase that I think most of our listenership, because of what we're always talking about, is going to agree with. But like, which of those takeaways would you advocate or both? Or how do we balance all of that? As it stands, unfortunately, Jewish institutions do not belong to all Jews in the way that they should. Um, they are serving a very small subsection of Jewish people and people who, who don't fit into that subsection just haven't been traditionally engaged by those institutions, feel alienated from them, feel uninterested in them, um, don't feel like they have anything to offer. And I want those institutions to get better, especially because in certain areas, if you're outside of New York, if you're in the Midwest, like me, there aren't always a ton of alternatives. Um, and for example, 
If you're on a university, Hillel's the only place that you can get kosher food. You need a Hillel that makes you feel welcome and doesn't make you feel uncomfortable because of your politics or gender identity or other background. I want to see institutions do a better job being accessible in, in all different kinds of ways. I want them to be more accessible to disabled people. I want them to do a better job with awareness of things like race. You know, we, we could have an entire conversation about the phenomenon of cops outside synagogues for security and the implications that has for the welcome that that creates for Jews of color. I want to see prayer books that include translations for people who don't speak Hebrew fluently. And that's also a live conversation. At the same time, Judaism can't be limited to institutions because it shouldn't be on a handful of really old formalized institutions to gatekeep who gets to do Jewish ritual, who gets to be a leader of Jewish community, and what Jewish community should even look like. And I see more and more new offerings creating alternatives, viable alternatives, so people who don't want to be part of Jewish institutions don't have to create something from scratch for themselves over and over. The reason people are willing to put in that work is so that they can have a Judaism that feels authentically their own. Miriam and I at the University of Michigan for a few years have been hosting Shabbats and Havdalahs and potlucks for the Jewish community on campus, and that's a lot of work, and it can feel hard. Um, but a conversation we've had with each other multiple times is I would rather struggle to figure out folding chairs and figure out who's going to bring the Shabbat candles and have everyone bring a potluck dish to an event in a basement than go into an amazing building that has a ton of money and isn't doing the kind of Judaism that I want for myself. I think that the freedom to build a Judaism that's authentic is more than worth the trade-off of some of the money and established ways of doing things that institutions can offer. I'm hearing you and a lot of the threads that you, you started with saying, you know, they're, they're maybe a little bit disjointed um, at the beginning of your of the episode. I'm hearing multiple of the threads in what you just said, the mutual aid piece, the the Judaism coming from the bottom up and not necessarily from the top down. I'm hearing um, some of the points you made about access when you're talking about translation and how that's a kind of that that's a different kind of access challenge where people can't access a text similar to how Rachel was talking about accessing a building for people who have for for disabled folks. So um, basically, a lot is coming together and cohering right now, which is, of course, what we want out of a debrief. But I'm going to throw it back to you for our last bit of wisdom from you. Um, what should folks walking away from this episode really be sitting with? What is what is the core teaching that they should be taking to their institutions and to their, you know, non-institutions to, to reflect back on that question? Help us out. One thing I learned making this podcast was that everyone really does have some sort of teaching or tour they can offer. I was, I was anxious creating this podcast because it felt like a step kind of out there to be offering wisdom to a swath of the Jewish community right now. Um, 
what do I know? I'm a college kid. And I want people to walk away from this episode feeling like they don't need to do that. They don't need to doubt themselves or put barriers to their own leadership because Judaism belongs to to every single one of us completely. And that means that we get to decide what we want Judaism to look like. We get to demand better from our institutions if they're not meeting our needs. And we have the ability to create a Judaism that's authentic, whatever authentic means, and vibrant and still evolving. Amazing. So um, we're going to close out with just some of our little plugs. But one thing I really want to mention is um, the the partnership that we've had with New Voices Magazine the last two, this is our second year now, is a really special thing. Um, and I think that this conversation really just sort of shines a light on the best things about New Voices Magazine. So I hope that you'll take a look at newvoices.org, which is um, the home, the other home that Becca is inhabiting this year as the New Voices Judaism Unbound Fellow. Um, and I also encourage on that note that people listen to this episode in concert with our previous episode with our fellow last year with Rini Yehuda Newman, um, talking about a pluralism of necessity as the framework that they used. And I think that these two episodes both vigorously agree with each other in a variety of ways and push back on each other beautifully. Like I, I just, I can envision like incredible text studies and conversations coming together through listening to these two together. So I encourage you, if you didn't listen to that one the first time around to check out the show notes for this page, it will include a link. And really just stay tuned for Becca Lubo's work because um, she just graduated from Michigan. She's from uh, the home of the Ohio State University, which for you sports fans, you know that that's anybody who can hold that tension between being from Columbus, Ohio and going to the University of Michigan clearly has a lot of chaps. So Becca is going to is going to take over the Jewish world and we're all going to benefit from it. Um, just thank you for bringing your Torah today. Um, I'm going to let you close it out with our with our last words, our famous words that close every Judaism Unbound episode. So Becca Lubo. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.